Hello, and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. While the rest of the world waved goodbye to 2023 and rang in 2024 with celebrations and fireworks, the mood in Israel was sober as the bloody war in Gaza and on its northern border wore on and death tolls continued to rise. There was a midnight New Year's reminder from Hamas in the form of a missile barrage across southern and central Israel, reminding us that the IDF is far from achieving its goal of eliminating Hamas's military capabilities, let alone developing a vision of what Gaza might look like after the war ends. And at the same time, Israelis continued to wait and worry about the fate of the hostages, with little progress in sight when it comes to freeing those remaining in captivity in Gaza. On Saturday night at a rally in Hostage Square in Tel Aviv, one of the featured speakers was today's guest on our podcast, veteran diplomat Ambassador Dennis Ross. For more than 12 years, Ambassador Ross played a leading role in shaping U.S. involvement in the Middle East and Israel, and he was the point man on the peace process in both the George W. Bush and Bill Clinton administrations. That was followed by a stint as special assistant to President Barack Obama. Today, he is a distinguished fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and he's co-chairman of the board of directors of the Jewish People Policy Institute. Dennis Ross, welcome to Haaretz Weekly, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Saturday night, you gave a moving speech in Hostage Square. You said that you've been in Israel now for several weeks. I think that's something that people were surprised to hear. And I'm interested in what you've been doing here. And you know Israel so well. Is it different Israel after October 7th? What are your impressions? Has uh, Israel been irrevocably changed by what happened on October 7th? I don't know if it's irrevocably changed, but it's definitely a different Israel. Uh, look, I look at October 7th as being 9-11 squared, uh, and it has an effect on people. How can it not have an effect on people? Uh, there is a, a sense of certain basic assumptions about life here. A, that you could always count on the, the government to guarantee security of people living within the state. B, that uh, deterrence was working. Uh, as it related to certainly Hamas, but to some extent Hezbollah as well. Uh, see a sense that even if Israel was surprised, that this couldn't be the consequence of the surprise. Uh, and so it, it has obviously shaken the faith of people, made them much more sensitive to their security needs. And it's also changed the way I think that most Israelis, including people who uh, have been in the forefront of always wanting to find uh, a two-state answer, uh, I think it's shaken their faith about the Palestinians or the Palestinians Hamas. Uh, I've always viewed you know, the Palestinians as being distinct from Hamas. I think the feeling I find among Israelis today is uh, there's a, either there's an assumption that they are the one and the same, or there's uncertainty about who the Palestinians really are. And so I think it's it's just affected so many things of, of Israelis, and I've seen it as I've traveled around the country. Has it shaken your faith? Were you surprised by what happened on October 7th? And as the information comes out, you know, more and more details of how barbaric and brutal that attack was, were you as stunned as Israelis and others were by the fact that Hamas 
was not at all engaged in any kind of process of transformation into a, a, a governing body and that it was that committed to the violent slaughter and suffering of Israelis that it would do what it did and be willing to pay the price that it's paying right now. I was surprised less by who Hamas was. I mean, after all, when they took power in 2007 in Gaza, they threw the Fatah guys off the tops of buildings. I mean, people who do that, what, what kinds of limits, limits do they really respect? You know, could I imagine some of the atrocities? No, because I don't think that way. Uh, the most shocking thing for me was the, uh, not so much about Hamas, but very much about the lack of preparedness here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the strategic surprise can always happen. 9-11, Pearl Harbor, the 73 war. Uh, strategic surprise happens when you have basic assumptions. Uh, and those basic assumptions create a prism through which you read all the information you get. In the case of strategic surprise, you always have all the information you need, but you misinterpret it. Uh, here was a basic set of assumptions about who Hamas was, reflecting in the essence of your question, which was they had been transformed into being concerned about governing. That's why they wanted Palestinians to be able to work uh, in Israel and create at least a certain basic economic floor. That assumption proved to be completely wrong. Uh, so uh, is it possible to make those kinds of mistakes? Yes, it's possible to make those kinds of mistakes. What I couldn't imagine uh, is that it would take so long to muster a defense. It would take so long uh, for the people in the South to pretty much be on their own. It would take so long to get an organized defense. In the meantime, you had absolutely heroic heroic responses by these generals who were in their 60s, who on their own were going down there. Uh, the The inability of the IDF early on to respond, that really surprised me. Dennis, you said in your speech in Hostage Square, quote, I know something about this area, about Hamas, about Sinwar. They will not be induced to release the hostages. There will have to be pressure put upon them, and it will have to be military pressure. One of the reasons that Qatar is once again talking about a deal is that military pressure is being put upon them. Hamas wants a reprieve. That means that there is a dimension of military pressure being put upon them, and that opens the possibility of a deal. That sounds supportive of the level of ferocity of the war that Israel is currently waging in Gaza and a belief that that is the way to get the hostages back, as opposed to some of the voices that are saying that it's the intense warfare and getting them back are conflicting goals. Am I right in interpreting your remarks that you believe that this war has to be waged fully in order to have a chance of some sort of a hostage release deal, as opposed to the opposite assumption that Israel needs to pull back, calm down in order to make a hostage release possible? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of an overinterpretation because, as you know, I went on from there to talk about, but there also has to be political pressure. There also has to be a reframing of issues publicly. I think the pressure on Hamas comes from also trying to discredit and delegitimize what they've done. The military pressure I view is, I think one can wage this military campaign in a way that ends up being very focused on trying to get Sinwar, a very targeted pressure where uh, what he sees is that the ability to get him is increasing. What he sees is also a systematic destruction of the military infrastructure. So it's some mix 
Does it mean, you know, that the that there are no limits in terms of how you carry out the campaign? No, there need to be limits in terms of how you carry out the campaign. Uh, and it needs to take account of trying to minimize civilian casualties as hard as that is because Hamas has structured itself so that Israel has to inflict uh, civilian casualties, which is something, after all, that Hamas wants. It, it wants to frame the issue solely in terms of death and destruction of, of Palestinians. It doesn't want to frame the issue in terms of uh, its kidnapping of hostages, which it should never have done, uh, and the atrocities that it committed. Uh, so there needs to be a combination of pressures that uh, are created on them. Well, I said one of the things I would like to see a concerted effort to get imams to come out and say what Hamas has done is un-Islamic. This is the Islamic resistance movement. Well, let's find ways to discredit them from that standpoint. Uh, those who have always been big supporters of the Palestinian cause, you know, they can still be critics of Israel, but they should also be saying holding of the hostages discredits the Palestinian cause. So, and then lastly, I think there needs, you know, Qatar needs to be operating not only as a messenger or as a mediator, like a neutral mediator, it it has a lot of pressure it can apply. It needs to do more of that. So for me, it's a it's a very comprehensive approach to pressure, not a narrow approach to pressure. Do you feel that the United States is using all of the leverage that it has on Qatar to pressure them, to pressure Hamas? It would be hard for me to believe that we're not being very different in private with Qatar from the way we're being in public. I can understand being in public, you're not bashing them. Uh, but in private, I think the message needs to be, you have a relationship with them. You claim it has benefits. Okay, there's been one deal. We're three months into this. That doesn't show a whole lot of benefit. Uh, we need to see that you're actually applying pressure as well. It's hard for me to believe knowing People like Bill Burns, that's not part of the private message. Do you think that Israel's declared goal of not only destroying Hamas's infrastructure, but eliminating all Hamas presence from the Gaza Strip is an achievable goal? Um, you've written before, I've seen that uh, Israel is seeking total surrender, and sur total surrender is not common in modern warfare. And when you referred before to getting Sinwar, do you equate that with total surrender? Yeah, I actually haven't used the word total surrender. I've actually, my attitude has been what Israel needs to do is it needs to destroy the, the vast bulk of the military infrastructure, which has been built up in a way that nobody, I think, fully appreciated. I've been to the base where the captured equipment is. It's astounding what they were producing. They got from the outside, but they're also producing a lot of this because they're getting the materials from the outside. Uh, so... Number one, the military infrastructure has to be destroyed so it's not easy to rebuild. Number two, the whole command control system has to be taken apart. Number three, the military organization. This is Hamas is not a militia. It's a military. Uh, it, has, it had 24 battalions and five brigades. You have to break down that so that there's no longer any military organizational coherence. Uh, you're not going to get rid of any remnants of Hamas. There'll be Hamas individual, even individuals uh, with guns that will still be there. In power in, in Gaza? Because, Not in power. Yeah. Not in power. No, you have to weaken Hamas to the point where A, it's no longer in control of Gaza, and B, it's too weak to prevent the emergence of an alternative regime. That doesn't mean you, you cannot, no one can get rid of Hamas as an idea. No one can get rid of Hamas 
uh, as, in a sense, an organization because it exists outside of Gaza. And no one can destroy every remnant or every Hamas fighter. That's not possible. But that's not what the objective needs to be. The objective needs to be to put Hamas in a position where it is too weak uh, to reconstitute itself. It is too weak to be able to rearm. It is too weak to be able to uh, oppose or prevent the emergence of an alternative regime. In a Wall Street Journal op-ed a few days ago, you warned that, quote, threatening to withhold U.S. aid unless Israel changes its policies would only have the effect of making Israelis feel that it must go it alone and that history shows that if Israeli voters think the U.S. is making unreasonable demands, it will reject them regardless of the cost and that with Israelis united in wartime and still traumatized by the Hamas attack, trying to force them to accept a Palestinian state will backfire. I presume you wrote that because you see the increasing number of voices in influential parts of the Democratic Party and in general in the American public saying that, you know, why are we giving all of this aid, all of this support, all of this backing to Israel when they are not listening to us, when they're not paying attention to us and when they don't accept our view of a Palestinian state, of a a two-state solution? Did you write that because you see this as a genuine danger? Are you concerned by these voices and their increasing strength and power in the, in American public opinion? Well, I really did it for two reasons. Uh, the short answer is yes to your question. Yes, I see a trend line. Uh, I see a reality where many in the states and certainly in the Democratic Party are focused uh, almost exclusively on what Israel is doing and not on what Hamas did. Uh, and Here in Israel, I see almost a a complete focus on what Hamas did and not what are the effects uh, of what Israel is doing on Palestinians within Gaza. So I see these kind of two different universes right now. uh, And, you know, if you want, and this is based on, I wrote that piece not only because of what I believe, but it's also based on my experience. You know, I gave examples, presidents who have the greatest chance of affecting Israel are those who convey to the Israeli public that they understand Israel's predicament and they understand this region. And they understand the kind of threats that Israel faces are not abstract. uh, And that Israel lives in a very tough neighborhood. And in a very tough neighborhood, if you're perceived as weak, you don't survive. So that kind of an understanding, when you have a president who gets that, that president is able to create a bond with the Israeli public. A prime minister who resists such a president will pay a big price here. And that, so I wanted, in a sense, I want to be communicating that to an American public uh, at a time when I see, going back to the first question you asked me, you know, yes, there is a different Israel right now. Uh, and the U.S., if it wants to affect Israel's Uh, attitudes and approaches, it needs to take account that this is a different Israel right now. Now, the U.S. also is a great power, a superpower that has other interests and also has interests in the Middle East. And it's very mindful of what the of what its Arab friends are saying, including those Arab friends who have no interest in seeing Hamas survive, who have no interest in seeing uh, Iran and its and basically its access gain. So the U.S. has to try to balance a set of, of interests here that ultimately some of these interests relate very much to Israel's longer-term well-being also. So it's, it's, it's a complicated undertaking, but which means on the one hand, we have to be able to take account of what's happening here in Israel, and we have to try to still use our influence to the extent we can 
to try to help shape some of what Israel does as it deals with what it sees as a war that is seen in, in Israeli terms as something that is an imperative where Israel cannot be expected to live with Hamas next door. And having been down to Kafar Aza uh, this past week, I can tell you that, you know, seeing is always believing. Of course, I understood everything that had been done, but everything I saw, if, there's no way you live uh, or the America would live with that kind of an enemy next door. We wouldn't accept it in our own case. We shouldn't be asking you to accept it. Do you see this president, President Joe Biden, even mulling placing conditions on American aid, either when we're talking about this immediate war or when it comes to influencing the future of the West Bank and the two-state solution? I mean, he literally went around Congress this time around to give Israel the aid and the weapons to fight the Gaza war. So do you see this as the question that you addressed in the op-ed as something to think about under Biden or you're just talking about the future and future presidents? Look, Biden has this extraordinary emotional attachment to Israel. Uh, it isn't to say he doesn't see the strategic value of Israel, but you have to understand the nature of his commitment, his readiness to withstand pressures from the rest of the world and even from within his own party, and to be paying a political price at home uh, because of, of his support at this point. So I, I wrote this because... There is a climate, I think, that needs to be effective, and it's, it was a climate in the U.S. that was divorced from history and divorced from understanding the realities here, uh, and I wanted to, to use a platform, which is a good platform, for trying to affect what is a, an emerging debate within the U.S. How do you see playing into it the fact that leading powerful figures in the current Israeli government openly reject the vision of a two-state solution? openly reject anything that Biden has proposed for a long-term vision for Gaza. Finance Minister Betzel Smotrich just made remarks suggesting that the removal of about 90 percent of Gaza's residents would help achieve his goal, his vision for Gaza. He says if there's only 100 or 200,000 Arabs in Gaza instead of 2 million, Israel will have no problem. And that Quote, in order to control the territory militarily over time, you must also have civilian presence there. So basically, he's talking depopulation and reoccupation. Is there any hope of ending this war and finding a future for Gaza with a government like this led by Benjamin Netanyahu, whose political survival depends on keeping people like Smotrich and uh, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir in his government? As long as Smotrich and Ben Gavir are in a position to, to shape Israel's policies, uh, it will create inevitable pressures from the United States, even from someone like Joe Biden, because that vision is so alien to any possibilities uh, for the future. It's a vision that basically says we will control Palestinians forever and they will simply accept it. And uh, it also is a vision that suggests that somehow Israel's a superpower and it doesn't need anyone else. So for, for people like Smotrich and Ben Gavir, they're living in a world of their own, but it's not, it's not a world of reality. Now, right now, look in Israel, nobody wants to hear talk about a Palestinian state. It's too soon. What I wrote in the Wall Street Journal piece was reflecting the reality here. You have a country, Israel, that has experienced a trauma. Uh, that trauma takes time to work through. 
That trauma affected basic assumptions. It has to be absorbed. There has to be the political, there will be a political reckoning in Israel. October 7th was the worst day in Israel's history by far. There will be a political reckoning. Israelis have to have the time to work through that reckoning. They have to have the time to work through a debate on what the relationship with Palestinians should be. Uh, to I've been talking uh, since I've been out here uh, and meeting, obviously, with a lot of people in the government and outside the government. Uh, I've been saying we need to think about something other than the day after. It's going to take time to get to the day after. There is a period between now and the day after. The military campaign itself will go through different phases. Uh, there will have to be a, a process, a gradual process, where there will be Palestinians in Gaza who have to assume responsibility for administration. The Smotrich vision has Israel responsible in Gaza forever. It has, he, the reason he wants to depopulate Gaza, because even he knows you can't be managing, you know, two and a half million Palestinians and be responsible for them. Uh, you're not going to depopulate Gaza. That's not something that will be accepted by anybody internationally. Uh, and the reality is, when you're looking at the future of Gaza, you have several choices. Either Israel is responsible for administering Gaza, which I think nobody wants. Uh, UNRWA is responsible for administering Gaza, which is effectively a, a, a pathway back for Hamas. Uh, nobody is responsible for uh, for managing Gaza, which turns it into Somalia, uh, which sooner or later will come back to haunt Israel. Uh, there is not a combination of Arab states that are prepared to come in and manage it. So it means at some point you're going to have to have some kind of Palestinian administration there. Uh, and the reality is, how do you how do you focus on this, begin to address it? How do you get uh, an international involvement, at least at a humanitarian area, uh, from a humanitarian perspective to help you? build a bridge from where we are to what will eventually will be a day after. I don't see the day after coming for at least a year. Among other things, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rules out the Palestinian Authority as playing any kind of central or important role in post-war Gaza. Is there any hope? Let's leave, you know, Smotrich and Ben Gvir aside, let's say that they leave the government for whatever reason. Is there any hope of forward movement as long as Benjamin Netanyahu remains in power? And do you think that the Biden administration believes that there's a way to work with Netanyahu um, towards whatever it is that they want to achieve after the war? Look, I think the, the Biden administration understands that certainly for the time being, he's the prime minister. And so you're working with him. Uh, they're making it pretty clear that there are some boundaries here. Uh, and I think so long as Mochich and Ben Gavir are within the within the government, uh, it affects uh, what are the what are the choices. Now, having said that, you know, I also saw that Zaki Hanegmi, who is a national security advisor, wrote a piece for, a, you know, for a, a Saudi website in which effectively he said a reformed Palestinian authority could play a role. The, let's be clear, no one is saying today that the Palestinian Authority should be playing a role in Gaza and basically brought in to, to manage Gaza. It, it has a hard enough time managing itself in the West Bank. There has to be a reformed uh, Palestinian Authority, one that can become much better at governance, much less characterized by corruption, uh, much more connected with its own public. You know, we've seen it done before. We saw it done in 2007. Uh, when Salam Fayyad was uh, basically 
George W. Bush and the donors insisted that he be empowered as a prime minister, and he was, and he cleaned up the place, but he didn't just clean up the place. People forget when he took over in 2007 as the empowered prime minister, Fatah had just lost Gaza. It had no credibility. There was complete lawlessness in the West Bank. Everyone thought he would focus on economics, and instead what he did is he started with security because he said, if we don't have law and order, we won't have an economy. So it is possible uh, to to have an empowered prime minister. It has to be someone untainted by the current PA. If you bring in someone who is a product of the current PA, they'll have no credibility. So it has to be someone who's untainted. That has to take place. That has to go through a process. You know, then within Gaza, you have to you have to create a kind of, I would say, a preparatory phase where uh, you may be working just with the, the civic structure that has existed at a bureaucratic level from the PA's time through Hamas's time just to deal with the day-to-day realities. Uh, and Israel needs to create, I think, as it as it succeeds in removing Hamas control, uh, probably starting in the north and then moving to the south, you need to have this process where you begin to create a different level even of humanitarian assistance going in so that there are signs of success on the one hand in terms of removing Hamas's control and the real needs of people on the ground are being met. This becomes part of, I think, a transition that is designed to get you to the day after. Uh, can that be done with the current government? My guess is it probably can. To be able to move to a real day after, I think you're going to probably have to have a different government. So I saw a blueprint that you and your colleagues at the Washington Institute created really not that long after the war broke out, I think less than two weeks. And you referring to some of the same principles here, the establishment of an interim administration to run Gaza until the PA is able to assume that role. But that article did say that, quote, the ultimate goal should be for the Palestinian Authority to return as Gaza's legitimate government. Polls show, though, that the Palestinian Authority in its current form, you know, is so unpopular, both among Gazans, both in the West Bank. There's not a coincidence that we haven't seen elections in the West Bank in so long. I mean, in view of this reality, do you still think it's wise for Biden to follow your advice and put all of his chips on a reformed and revitalized Palestinian Authority? Or do you just think that there's no other choice? First, it's interesting. I don't use the term revitalized because I, th- I think you, you have to transform it. For the PA to become credible again, it has to be transformed to the point where it is it delivers services, uh, it builds institutions, uh, it, it, it genuinely fights corruption, and it needs to be run by those, you know, in a sense, who show their, their professional competence. And that will take some time. I don't think there's an alternative. Uh, so the PA today, as it is, can't play that role. The PA over time can. You can't invent an alternative at this point. So you have a structure, but the structure needs to be overhauled and reformed. But right now I'm saying the day after, partly because of what exists in Gaza, partly because of what exists in the West Bank, I view this as a, at least a year before you can you can get to that point. Now, that doesn't mean you do nothing in the meantime. On the contrary, there should be a focus on uh, you know, doing what was done back in 2007. The, the donors need to go to Abu Mazen as a collective and basically say, 
you know, you empowered a prime minister to clean everything up before, it has to be done now. And in the and in and in Gaza, as I said, as you begin to create some areas where Hamas really is out of control, and there it's pretty close to that already in the north, there still will be pockets. But you basically then begin to build some humanitarian structures, working with the, the kind of bureaucratic structure there to begin a process of rehabilitation. I don't say reconstruction yet, because reconstruction is going to have to be tied to complete demilitarization. Uh, but then there's going to have to be massive reconstruction. And again, this can't be done without some kind of, of Palestinian governance there. And some people like to say that kind of uh, a reconstruction Palestinian interim authority. I don't care what you call it. There has to be some kind of Palestinian partner on the ground. There has to be some kind of international monitoring to make sure that all the material coming into Gaza is used for its end purpose. Uh, it, you have to create this structure that helps to ensure that what Israel is doing now and what I would describe as Israel is in the process of demilitarizing Gaza. Uh, Hamas spent uh, since 2007, building that structure and the four, the, the preceding four conflicts that Israel had with Hamas clearly did not destroy, did not come close to destroying the infrastructure. Now that's the case. I'll just repeat what I said earlier. I couldn't believe the array of weaponry that Israel has captured uh, from Hamas. It is extraordinary what they have. Uh, what they built, what they get from the outside, but also what they have built, the industrial base they built to produce this, not to mention the tunnels. Imagine if Hamas had had even a 2% interest in building Gaza. What it did to build this military capability, what it did to build the tunnels, could have turned Gaza into Singapore. Now, I, I actually gave a speech in Gaza in early 2005 uh, to what was then the Gazan uh, Council on Foreign Relations. And I, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know they were going to be invited. Leaders of Hamas were there. I spoke to a couple hundred Palestinians. This was after Sharon had said he was, he laid out his, um, you know, he, he did, he'd done his two speeches and, and he was going to disengage from Gaza. And I said, look, Palestinians now have a chance to shape their own destiny. No one else is shaping it. Israel's getting out. You turn Gaza into Singapore. And it won't just be the international community, it'll be the Israelis to say, okay, it worked there, we can do it in the West Bank too. But you turn it into a platform for attacks against Israel, and who's going to say, take that failed model? Now, what they did is, they the only thing they cared about was not building or advancing Gaza one iota. It was entirely building this capability to do what they did on October 7th. Yeah, and I think that, you know, disappointment in that and what happened there in Gaza, in general, disappointment about Oslo. It feels like a million years ago, right? But it was only in September. You sat down for a really extensive interview with our Washington correspondent, Ben Samuels, to uh, reflect on the 30th anniversary of Oslo. And you acknowledge that it's become a dirty word for people on the left and the right and regret of its legacy and lack of credibility. I mean, after all of that, do you still think that... Israel, the Palestinians, the international community can muster up enough hope to build some sort of a post-Gaza war process and invest in it after, um, you know, looking at uh, some of the disappointments of the past? Well, Alison, I would say when you have something as catastrophic as October 7th, 
to go back and act as if it's still October 6th is a huge mistake. But also when you have something as catastrophic as October 7th, uh, and not to, to think differently in terms of, okay, how do we produce a different future? You can have the answer of people like Smotrich and Ben Gavir, which will guarantee that you have a perpetual conflict and there's never any prospect of change. Uh, and you'll have a bloodbath along the way. Or you can say, okay, what does it take to do things differently? Now, you have something, you, ha you have two kinds of coalitions that still exist, even if they're not formalized in this region. One is, again, what I call the axis of misery, which is Iran and all the states where it has either control, leverage, or major influence. And that's a raid against those who want a very different future. The, the UAE, the Abraham Accord countries, Saudi Arabia's interest in, in, uh, in normalization, you know, the, its approach to normalization now in terms of what it will require for Palestinians will be different. But the basic view of what they want for the region, what they want for themselves, is still there. So how do you build those partnerships? There'll have to be a Palestinian dimension to it. Many of those in the Gulf who thought, okay, we, we don't think that the Palestinians on their own are ever prepared to really do anything to, to end the conflict. So we're not prepared any longer to sacrifice our own interests. That's what produced the Abraham Accords. Now what happened on October 7th is a reminder, you can't go on as if the Palestinian conflict doesn't exist. So the question is, how do you marshal those forces? How does Israel, you know, how does it think about what its relationship with the Palestinians needs to be? It's interesting, Allison, that there's never truly been a debate on what Israel's relationship with the Palestinians should be. Oslo was a secret process that was then adopted by a small margin in the Knesset. Uh, there, there was opposition, but there wasn't a serious debate. When Ariel Sharon made the decision to withdraw from Gaza, he made the decision. There was opposition, but there wasn't a debate. There wasn't a debate about what should our relationship with the Palestinians be. Now, that's a debate that's it's too soon to happen right now because the feelings, the concerns, the trauma are still too raw. But at some point, it has to happen. Uh, and you have to think about the future. What you know is you can't wish the Palestinians away, just as they can't wish you away. So there still has to be an approach, and it needs to be debated. And to be fair, something is required of the Palestinians too often internationally. Uh, and for, for too many, the idea of focusing only on Israel and none of the Palestinian responsibilities, none of the need for Palestinian accountability is there. You know, the perception I feel here in Israel is that, Palestine, that Israelis view Palestinians and Hamas as one of the same. And the Shikaki polls kind of reinforce that. Now, the polls are a snapshot of the moment. Uh, and, you know, the reality is Palestinians will need to demonstrate over time that they are not Hamas. Hamas does not represent them. They will need to demonstrate that they believe in coexistence. If you're going to affect the Israeli public, they're going to have to see signs of that. Separation from Hamas and acknowledgement of the historic Jewish connection to the land. And acceptance that Israel has a right to be here, not just that it's a fact that is here. These are things that are required on the Palestinian side. And it's it, given the current circumstances, it's too hard to produce that in the near term. But if there's going to be a real change, if there is a possibility to produce, I still think in the end, if you're going to have real coexistence, 
I don't see how two national identities can coexist in one state. That's a prescription for endless conflict. So personally, I don't see an alternative to two states for two peoples, but I know the time horizon on that is going to be longer than I would hope it to be, but that's the reality. Well, I can't finish this conversation without discussing what you mentioned in your remarks just now, the I-word of Iran. Um, This war represents the first time that this so-called axis of resistance, the alliances, the uh, proxies uh, developed by Iran over decades to counter Israel, to counter American power in the Middle East, is mobilizing on multiple fronts. When you look at what's happening, particularly what's going on with the Houthis in the Gulf, you know, interfering with global shipping, the international response to this, um, do you see this as a precursor to Iran becoming directly involved in the conflict, either by attacking itself, being attacked by Israel or other parties with or without international coordination? My question, I guess, in short is, how worried are you that this is inevitably going to lead to some sort of wider uh, regional conflict and situation that is not easily ended or resolvable? It's impossible to look at the North and not think about the consequences of a, of a wider regional conflict, but I also would put this in some perspective. Uh, it's not an accident that Nasrallah waited three weeks before he made his first statement. And then when he made his first statement, uh, his he was saying, we're doing what we need to do, meaning we're not going to do more. Of course, the danger when you signal with the use of force is you can hit the wrong target. So there is a risk that this could turn into a, a much wider war. Uh, and that's and it's clearly something that the, the Biden administration was focused on from the very beginning. I would say, you know, for, for Iran, Hezbollah is unlike any other of its proxies. All of its other proxies, it's willing to fight to the last of them without shedding a tear. Hezbollah is different because Hezbollah is kind of the equivalent of their foreign legion. Uh, Hezbollah trained Hamas, it trained the Houthis. Uh, Hezbollah fought in the war in Syria in a way, of course, the Iranians did not. Uh, Hezbollah is the only place where the Iranians have exported the Islamic Revolution. And Hezbollah is the ultimate uh, insurance policy for them against Israel attacking the nuclear infrastructure. It's not an accident they have 150,000 rockets. So. I don't think Iran or Hezbollah wants an all-out war, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. And Iran's strategy towards Israel has been make it unlivable. That's why it built up all these proxy forces, make it unlivable. You know, the idea that they want a nuclear weapon to drop it on Israel, no, they want a nuclear weapon, or at least they want they want to put themselves in a position where they could have a nuclear weapon because it creates a shield behind which they can engage in coercion and intimidation throughout the region. Uh, and so they weren't going to their their strategy wasn't to drop a nuclear weapon on israel because that produces a response within iran no their strategy has been to wear israel down and to make it unlivable that's why the supreme leader says in 25 years it won't be there so you have to have an effective counter you have to have an effective deterrent you have to find ways to raise the cost to iran itself working you know they're happy to work through proxies hitting only the proxies doesn't affect them So you have to raise the cost to Iran itself if you're going to change this. This is a longer term uh, strategy now that's going to be required. Iran clearly feels it's gained in the current setting. The defeat of Hamas is important for Israeli deterrence. 
the defeat, and here I say Hamas being out of power, that sends a message. Here, you carry out this attack, you can hurt Israel, but the consequence is you lose power and control. That's important. That also have an effect on the Iranians because it means they begin to lose their instruments. So look, this has to be a kind of integrated strategy. It has to be not just an Israel strategy, not just an American strategy, but an international one. Uh, you know, it's a it's a real challenge. Some of what the Houthis are doing in the Gulf, though, doesn't just make life unlivable for Israelis. It's making life not unlivable, but it's really has the potential to mess with the global economy. It does. It does. 20% of the of the petrochemicals pass through the Bab del Monde. It does. And it means you have to be prepared to inflict a price on the Houthis. Again, these are instruments for the Iranians. The only one of the instruments I think they're not prepared to lose is Hezbollah. And the others they don't want to lose because it, obviously it creates leverage for them, not just on Israel, by the way. Look, the, look at the approach to the Houthis so far. We have created, a, we've built on a naval task force that is intercepting uh, their, their drones and their, and their missiles. But until we start imposing a price on them, you know, why would they change? So, yes, this is part of Iran's, this is, Iran is not trying to affect only Israel. It's trying to build its leverage on everybody in the region and say, it's a little bit like the mafia, where the mafia pretty come, comes to you and says, you know, that's a really nice shop that you have. It would be a shame if it were to blow up. And the Iranians want to put themselves in a position where they can go to everybody and say, gee, wouldn't it be terrible if something happened here? Uh, you know, you have the right kind of relationship with us. You can count on the fact that it won't happen. That's Iran's approach to the region. Iran wants to dominate the region. Uh, it sees Israel and the United States as the main impediment to that. That's what drives the strategy. Now, there needs to be a countervailing strategy and one that basically raises the price to them. Uh, and they have real vulnerabilities on the inside. Uh, this is a this is a country that's waiting for the next big uh, explosion domestically. You know, women like freedom had a farther reach than all the previous demonstrations and protests that we saw. But there will be others because life is difficult there. Uh, you have a public that is largely alienated from the leadership. They feel they have it under control, but you go back to 2017, since 2017, every year you've seen uh, an explosion at some point of protests throughout the country. And they become, each year they became worse. So it's not as if this is a, a regime that is problem free. So we have to think about how do you complicate this? My own sense is, you know, the this is a regime that will face a significant problem when the Supreme Leader passes from the scene, because it's likely to create a succession set of issues and crises. And then we'll see what changes, the potential changes in Iran. You can't predict regime change, uh, and you also can't produce regime change. Uh, anybody who thinks that, you know, we have a long history that shows the folly of doing that. But you can, you can basically create the kind of pressures on Iran that compound their own contradictions. And over time, those contradictions will play out. Well, I guess that is the closest thing we can get to closing this interview off on a somewhat uh, hopeful note. I'll note that we're recording this on the first of the year in 2024. So I'll end with hoping that uh, 
this year brings much better things for the region, for the Middle East, than 2023 did. Dennis Ross, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts with us. Allison, thanks very much for having me. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Ambassador Dennis Ross, and to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.